Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Sister Teresa Maya, Tara Maya, who is a member of the Congregation of the Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word, San Antonio, since 1994. Her education ministry has spanned several decades. She has served as a teacher, history professor, administrator, and speaker. She has passion for formation of ministers for Hispanics, Latinoas in the United States. Sister Tere got her BA at Yale University, her MA at the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley, and her PhD at El Colegio de Mexico in Mexico City. She served 14 years in the leadership of her religious institute and on the Leadership Conference of Women Religious Presidency from 2016 to 2019. She currently accompanies other religious congregations as facilitator and consultant. Sister Tere, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you for the invitation, Julia. Yeah, it's going to be so much fun to just have a conversation because uh, I've known you for so many years through Giving Voice and our other networks of Catholic sisters stirring up good, holy trouble in the world. And we're both pretty busy, so we rarely get to actually sit down and have deep chats. (laughs) So this is a real privilege. I know, it's exciting. I I was thinking, when was the last time we had a heart-to-heart talk with Julia? And I think it was one of those Giving Voice things. So much has happened, like midlife, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you've went from being a peer that I was sitting and having, praying with and having a beer with and playing goofy charades with, to a woman who's sought after in the church as a speaker. And you've had quite the life journey. I'm interested in hearing your vocation story and what helped you to feel called into being a sister, to joining the congregation of the Sisters of the Incarnate Word, and then becoming a history professor and really a religious leader. Oh my God, Jill, how much time do you have? uh, (laughs) I'll try to do the abbreviated version. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle right now on a transition piece. I just finished leadership. Um, It's actually... Going, I'm going to begin my 25th Jubilee celebration. So this is kind of a time where you kind of reckon with, oh, my God, how did I get here? Like, Congratulations. How did it happen? Like, you know, um, yeah. so um, I'll start at the end. I just came back from Mexico City where I was cleaning out what I consider the first half of my life. Mm. Letters from when I was in high school, photographs, family albums. And it gave me a chance to just look at Tere 25 years ago and Tere today and I'm like oh my god so much has happened Mm. so much that's awesome unpredictable surprise that I could not have imagined when I started kind of knowing that there was a vocation or a call first I thought it was a hex like it's something that you can just make go away or it was I don't know at the beginning I was in high school all girls Catholic school I thought that's ah, just because all I see is the nuns but wait until I get to college it'll go away mm. I'm in college and it's still not going away and well no 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 but I have to work so I just kept thinking it's gonna go away but first thing I learned is when God calls God keeps calling <laughs> And God keeps calling even within the call. And that's the other part of the learning. You know, you you get there and you're like, okay, check. I've answered the call. And then 
it's full of surprises. Like I never thought I would live in the places I live. I never thought I would end up back in the U.S. You know, I entered in Mexico because Latin America was in that time of great commitment with the poor. And I wanted to live simply. And my whole discernment was, can I live in one of the small villages and just accompany the people for the rest of my life? And it turns out I only did that one year. (laughs) Got out of the plans. Um, You know, then I became a school administrator and I'm like, what does this have to do with religious life? Mm. And then I learned what it did and accompanying the families and the kids. And as I'm going through all these pictures of my life, I'm saying, wow, you know, I have nothing but gratitude for what I have lived. So, so I think my call was, I've experienced this since I was a kid. Mm. I've always known there was like something else, like a longing for deeper, more profound relationship with God. I mean, when you're eight or nine, you don't know what that is, but I used to play golf when I was a kid and I used to love going to hole number 12 on the golf course because it had this view of the Valley river, the little kind of Creek that passed through there. And I remember I would just stop and just sit there Mm. and just, just contemplate. I didn't know it was contemplate. I didn't know it was a spiritual call, but I knew there was a longing for something. Mm. So I feel like the rest of my life, I've been trying to answer that call. I know I'm not done. I pretty sure God's going to keep calling for newer and weird and crazy, unexpected things, but I would do it all over. Mm. What have you learned about yourself and who you truly are as all these things have unfolded and you've had all these different chapters, these different photos of time? I remember a story when I was about to enter, one of my best friends got married and had her first baby. I, I kind of entered at that age where everyone else was getting married and having their babies. And I thought, well, it's my turn to make a life commitment kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And remember she said to me, she said, how are you going to mature in a religious life if mm. you don't have children? And I thought, what? what is she talking about? She says, well, I just had a child and I learned that you lose your eye into the we. Because, you know, I can't take a day off when the kid is sick. I can't ever sleep in or say, oh, I'm going on my eight day retreat because I have to take care of this kid. You know, I have to be responsible, whatever. So that kind of coming out of myself into the week, which is my family, is making me mature. And I thought, whoa, that's that's important. (laughs) And I mean, I'm like, well, I had no clue. You know, I was like 27 or something. Right. I have learned over the years that in religious life, in the celibate life, you have to be really aware of the temptation to selfishness Uh because it could be disguised in so many ways. It could be very holy disguised, like, oh, I need my day of prayer or I need time for discernment or, you know, I really need to think about this. But in the end, you just saying no because you don't want to do it or whatever so nothing's pure in our intent but we have to be in constant discernment so that discernment um, and that question that's kind of followed me my whole life has allowed me to just first of all be honest about myself about who I am what I value what I care for what I want to really spend my time and my imagination and my creativity with and so I've learned that You don't know yourself fully ever, but you have to keep 
really asking yourself important, deep questions. What do I believe? Do I still believe? Who am I today? How did this impact me? Right now, I'm just kind of like in post-pandemic hangover, like the rest of the world saying, what did it do to me? Because mm. I keep talking about it, it's done to everyone. What did it do to me? So I think it's a journey. It is. It's a, It has ups and downs and turns and dead ends. But you got to be honest about it. Yeah, yeah. I think what I'm hearing there underneath what you're talking about, which is interesting to me, is is how you've come to know God in your journey of discernment and asking of questions, deep questions, and, and willing to go to those hard questions, that God is a guide and a companion for you that kind of helps you to come to greater awareness of yourself and, and who you're meant to be for the world. Absolutely. I think as people around me say, you know, I don't really believe in God anymore, or why even believe in God? And I've come to realize that I cannot, could not live a life without this sense of presence, this sense of something bigger than myself, but especially the God of Jesus. I think I have to be very concrete. I love nature. I love what it does. I love how it gives me a sense of the magnificent, of the immensity of God's generous and constant creativity and generosity toward the universe. But at the same time, I fell in love with the God of Jesus, the God of mercy, the God of caring for people, of including people, of healing people to wholeness. And so I think that journey of mine got deeper and deeper. You know, the roots are growing and sometimes they stopped growing. There was a drought. You know? <laughs> sometimes I was too busy with myself or work mm. or administrative duties in a ministry. But every single time there'd be a moment where you just know something's not balanced here. Let's refocus. Let's recenter. Let's go back to the, to really that kind of fountain of who I truly am and who God is in my life. So I, I've really known the presence of God in very difficult and sad times. When you know you run out of ideas, of energy, you're just at the end, and then something graceful happens. And it could be a friend cards, it could be a, a song at mass, it, then you know you're not alone. And that, oh my God, has scared me my whole life. I heard you mention the word inclusion, and I'd love to go back to that and how God is a God of inclusion. And I know one of your, your passions, one of the things you're so excellent at teaching about is inculturality and the importance of creating an intercultural church or being an authentically intercultural church. <laughs> That's what the church already is, <laughs> right? I would love to, to hear you speak about that. But before you do, let me just say that, like, thank you for years ago, we were at some a Giving Voice gathering and you did an excellent presentation with all your graphs and your charts and you showed all of us younger sisters, look, Catholicism is not for white people. <laughs> Not only. <laughs> <laughs> and you need to decenter whiteness. Come on now, y'all. And you said something very bold and provocative that's remained a challenge for me that I feel like I still have not lived out and embraced, which was if you're calling yourself Catholic in the United States and you don't speak Spanish, then you might as well get out of the church. <laughs> 
doesn't get out of the way and learn the language so you know how to talk to your fellow Catholics, right? But I want to build bridges of belonging and I want to be in genuine relationship and I want to be a person who is stepping aside and amplifying other voices and learning from other cultures. And I find it an awkward thing to do sometimes. I find it clumsy and uncomfortable because I'm afraid I'm going to offend. <laughs> Two thoughts occur to me, Julia, as I hear you. The first is I think, you know, I always I always say this, we have to go back to Jesus. We have to always go back to Jesus. And that is one of the things that I treasure from reading Teresa of Avila. Mm. She used to say, no matter how advanced you find yourself in the journey of contemplation, you must always go back to Jesus. Um, to to Jesus Christ, you would say. But I think if we go back to the gospel and just contemplate in the Jesuit way, you know, the Mm -hmm. scene, the people, the environment, whatever, there's Jesus always moving around with all kinds of folk and being criticized with hanging out with the tax collector or the woman that sinned or or the women, just the women. And once you learn more about scripture in Palestine, 2000 years ago that was not cool to do you know you you didn't hang out with women you didn't go with uh people that were considered unpure or unclean in 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 the jewish tradition but he did he moved around he moved to places in the margins i mean you don't run into lepers because you're going to the supermarket and you know in (laughs) palestine you're intentionally walking away from the town center and and that's why you're running into them. I think we have to contemplate that Jesus, that Jesus that walks around, that meets people, that greets people. The other one that comes to mind, of course, is St. Francis. And many of my little things I went through, there's a picture of Francis talking to the birds, you know, and Francis also engages, you know, encuentro, goes forth, talks, listens. There's something I think is a an attitude about life that is just welcoming of life, of the diversity that it is, because God created the world that way. God created all of this diversity, all of this color and richness. It's, I mean, it's almost like you have to fall in love with it the way the way they did. So I think that to me is the heart of it. It's how do you become a follower of Jesus if you don't do as Jesus did? Mm. If you don't dance the dance that Jesus danced. The second part is, first of all, thanks for remembering that you got to speak Spanish. And now I would say Tagalog, Vietnamese. There's 60 languages that the Catholic Church celebrates mass in the U.S. every Sunday. It's unbelievable. It's so beautiful. And and it's this place, you know, this is almost like a 21st century Palestine. It's a crossroads of Mm. the Catholic Church. It is a privilege to be Catholic in the United States and to have the opportunity to experience the diversity, the beautiful diversity of our church. I tell people, go to the Black church celebrations on Sundays, the Black Catholic tradition, which we're finally beginning to notice and embrace. And that's in English. You know, it's not in Spanish. But anyway, and people say, well, you know, I don't understand Spanish, but you know the parts of the Mass, for God's sake. Yeah, right. (laughs) Bring your missile. Yeah. You know what the gospel is? If you really feel at a loss for a homily that day, go online and listen to one. The fact that you move and you sit in the pew with another language, another culture of our church, is going to do something to your heart. Yeah. And I think that's the part that I want to encourage people. Um, 
I live in this house, in this community with four sisters. And one of them from Mexico has struggles to learn English, like you struggle to learn, learn Spanish. Sometimes I'm not here, so I can't be the translator. And sometimes Google Translate's not enough. And one day I asked her, how's this working? <laughs> you know, like, are you okay? I was a little worried. And she said, you know, that it, these sisters speak the language of love. And they may not speak Spanish and know every word, but every part of their being is offering me welcome is offering me a relationship, an encounter. They speak the language of love. And that is a universal language. You know, when you're with people from a different culture or language, there's nonverbal language. Yeah. There's every other way to say, welcome, I'm here. How can I help? And I've seen it, for example, here in San Antonio, a lot of our older sisters volunteer with the Interfaith Welcome Coalition. Mm -hmm. And their Spanish is limited, but we are also getting migrants from you know, Eritrea and Ukraine and Haiti. And even if they spoke Spanish, they can't talk to them. But all those people know to find the abuelas, the grandmothers, because they're gonna be kind, they're gonna be welcoming, they're gonna be interested, they're gonna try to help. So I think that there is an attitude of the heart that you need. Mm, yeah. What you're saying is really helpful and encouraging, especially because as I've been reflecting on my own journey and growth, I've been thinking about how being authentic is usually the best thing I can offer. <laughs> and I still am sort of stripping away how I've been taught to be excellent or perfect or excel. Unfortunately, that's the way we've been conditioned, especially in my culture. And I want to be free to be who God is calling me to be with every person that I show up and I'm with. And I've been reflecting on how the Eucharist models for us that presence, the power of presence, is actually about being broken and being shared. And that requires uh, a lot of vulnerability. And it can be clumsy and uncomfortable. Well, you know, I, I appreciate the name of your blog, Messy. Yeah. <laughs> because life, life is messy. And uh, I've been rereading Pope Francis's little book, uh, Let Us Dream. Oh, I love that book. Yeah. In the book, Francis talks a lot about this perfectionism yeah. or, or sometimes how rigid we can be. And he calls it a danger in the church, almost a temptation. And I think that it's true blessed pandemic that made us absolutely vulnerable but at the same time it encourages us to discover that we're just human yeah. we are just human which is amazing it's incredible it's a journey of discovery but we're human with other people <laughs> and yeah. they're also you know like vulnerable and 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 so i think um in all of this we just have to own ourselves and be ourselves. And people can feel it from like miles away. You know, they know. They know if you're like giving them a formula. <laughs> God is with us. But at that particular moment, if you're feeling like you have doubts, they're going to hear the doubt in your tone of voice, in your statement. So I think authenticity is, is I think it's something we have to continue to strive for. 
It feels to me like the bedrock of healthy community, which validates and values every expression of humanity and all its beautiful diversity. Yeah. You're here, you're here. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. One of your gifts in specialties over the years has become helping to foster the development of religious life and helping religious life to be the best that it can be for the Catholic church, whatever that means. And (laughs) anyway, I'm wondering what you understand the role of religious life of nuns and sisters and brothers and priests and all of us vowed consecrated folks. What role do we have in the church? I'm very passionate. I do believe in religious life and its future, <laughs> but I also know it's not going to look like what it's looked like in the past. Yeah. So all that temptation about, oh, sister, when you used to, when you used to, when you used to, it's great. You know, I love history. I'm a historian by training, but at the same time, that also makes me realize what's coming is not what has been. Mm. And if we try to keep what has been, into what's coming will end up as a museum, which is not what God wants. I think we absolutely need to strive to preserve the life, the charism, the gift that it is, not just to the church, but to the world. And more and more, I've come to believe that the number one, there's two things that religious life witnesses to that are absolutely essential. First is that the God of Jesus exists cares, is present, accompanies, loves, is merciful, compassionate. And the second is that communion is essential for authentic human life. Um, and, And that involves community, that involves building communities, connecting with other communities, creating public spaces that are safe, for women, for children, for people who are different, because I think the world is now paying the price of selfishness, or Pope Francis would say, of narcissism, Mm. of the me first, of I only care about my stuff. Well, it's not really affecting me, so why should I, you know, uh, worry about it? An anecdote comes to mind in June, they found a trailer with um, all these migrants that had been packed in there and, and most of them died. And Archbishop Gustavo here in San Antonio celebrated an interfaith service. In the homily, he said, if you're not scandalized and moved by this tragedy, you are in many ways complicit. Mm. And I think of community as extending beyond just a group that I belong to and where I feel at home to extending that belonging and and feeling at home to my fellow human beings, no matter who they are, no matter what they think, no matter what flag they fly under, because if we don't do that, then that is the real tragedy for our human life. And I think that those are two essential components in that way religious life is called to witness to both. Mm. And there's so many ways to witness to both of those. You know, some people are theologians or or liturgists and they do beautiful liturgy. And I forgot a shout out for liturgists. Let's have more beautiful liturgies for God's sake that just lift up the soul. But you can also have artists 
Mm-hmm. We have religious men and women that are doing art. And I think today yeah. we need art. We need symbol. We need we need something else than just words to connect us. Poetry, music. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you'll have religious men and women that are going out to the margins that are accompanying people and migrants. Or you have older sisters who are flooding the world with prayer, with spiritual energy that we need. You know, any of us think about it, how many times when you're just at the end of your day and you just don't think you can take another step and someone says, I'm praying for you. It's that little grace that just pushes you over. There's so many expressions that can take in ministry and geographies, et cetera. Yeah. You know, an image comes to mind as you describe all that for me, which is this sort of like wispy, cobwebby energy that connects the church. And I see religious life, I guess, as this creative, fluid power (laughs) of the spirit. (laughs) And and so, yeah, amen, sister. (laughs) People call that the web of influence. And in a way, that's how you evangelize. Yeah. One person, one encuentro or encounter at a time, one conversation like this, you know, you never know. And so that reaching out, that connecting and letting the energy of the Holy Spirit flow through. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For listeners who might not have studied encuentro and the importance of that invitation from Pope Francis and what that call is, could you define that for us now? I would say Pope Francis is the result of the Latin American culture of Encuentro, uh-huh. of a way of being church that has been part of our Latin American life, no matter where you go, for many decades now. But it's the sense of coming together. So it's, it is a coming together. It's a coming together as a people of God, and it's a believing that something happens when we come together that's bigger than any of us when we're separate. But um, a sister who used to be president of CLAR, Mercedes Casas, says that the culture of Encuentro has three dimensions, and it's hospitality. I think that's, that is at the heart of a lot of what Pope Francis is inviting us to do with this synodal Synodal Journey, which, by the way, a shout out to all of those conferences with their reports and this last document that came out, I, you know, extend the tent. I, it's, it's amazing. I am so hopeful. We're really talking a lot about the importance of building up a church, uh, being people that are people of relationship, people that are open and vulnerable and allowing God to connect us and help us to become more unified and more whole together. One of the things you mentioned, though, is, you know, you were trained as a historian. So what role does history and the study of history need to play in helping us to become a church full of communion and encuentro? More and more, Julia, I'm going back to history. My first love, if you want to call it that. And I think that lately in our church, having to rewind and revisit the painful situations that created the abuse crises, mm-hmm. or Pope Francis going to Canada to apologize to First Nation peoples there for the role the church played in colonizing and, and stripping them of their culture, 
or even when I think of Black Lives Matter or Brown Lives Matter movements that are going back and saying, let's learn the whole story, not just parts of it. We have sadly in this striving for perfectionism curated our personal lives, our communities' lives, our churches' lives of the dark and difficult moments. But in any journey, unless you integrate the light and the shadow, you don't grow in authenticity, you don't mature. So I believe today, more than ever, history has a critical role in recovering the memory. Uh, Latin American liberation theologians call it memoria historica. And most countries that are going through some kind of reconciliation process have commissions that are always called truth and reconciliation. Unless you can speak the truth, however painful and difficult, you don't move into authentic reconciliation. So I think recovering, going back, completing, revisiting some of those chapters of our history, whether it's personal or congregational or the church or the countries we're living in, will help us realize that, you know, even 30, 40, 50 years ago, these our older sisters were women that were trying to do their best in the culture they were living in. And so I believe that we have to dust some of that and, and it's almost like complete it. I went to an exhibit in Mexico City last week, which I loved. It was like, how come we haven't recovered the presence of women in Mexican art? Mm. And they had a video of a Spanish art professor that all you could see was the book. And then she said, okay, this is like the Renaissance. Oh, they're missing this one. And then she would grab a page and insert it. Huh. This is, she was an artist and knew Michelangelo. And then she'd flip to, I don't know, 17th century Flemish, whatever. Oh, and there was this, and then she would insert it. So I think that was so graphic for me. Mm-hmm. It's like, we have the story, which is good. We just need to add some of the chapters that we've been skipping over. Mm-hmm. And that will help us understand systemic racism. Mm-hmm. Will help us to understand why the church in the United States is so one color. Yeah. I do think that history will offer a new lens, but we need a history that's not hagiography, mm-hmm. that's not selective. We need a history that's honest, human. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of think like, you know how you curate your Facebook photos? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Some like who, who posts their messy stuff? I mean, there's a few people I, I completely admire them for that. But most <laughs> of us, you know, like, oh, take another one, take another one. <laughs> So that's that's the way we do history for in so many ways. <laughs> I can understand the temptation for us to want to like, you know, make little museums of our lives or our church or ourselves or, you know, of humanity and really sh- just profile, showcase the best and the most beautiful. But I think what you're describing here is the importance of revealing, like you say, the shadows and the light and, and, and the messiness of that. And again, that's back to the authenticity, right? Invites us to a space of lament at times, to sorrow, to apology, to asking for forgiveness. In those transformative energies, then we become more whole and hopefully more holy as a humanity. And, you know, memory is tricky. I, I love this <laughs> podcast of Professor at Yale, Laurie Santos, Mm. she talked about the selective memory and she said, you know, think about it. You go on a trip, 
you know, you miss a flight, they lose your luggage, all these bad things happen. But as time goes by, you keep kind of clipping the video <laughs> and, and you only keep the really awesome stuff. And then, you know, 10 years later, you said, oh, my God, that trip was fabulous. Mm -hmm. But then you've already edited out all the bad stuff. Memory can be a sacrament, but it can also be a very dangerous place if it's not the whole story. Mm. Absolutely. Say more. Memory can be a sacrament. I think that you know, when we celebrate the Eucharist, yeah. we are remembering. Mm -hmm. And in the remembering, the grace happens. It's the sacrament. It's really like a sacrament of memory. At the same time, I think we have to remember. We have to remember the whole thing. In that remembering, you can keep going. I feel that in human life and in Christian life, the core of our Christian life is the memory of Jesus. The fact that we celebrate the memory of Jesus. That's why Eucharist is so powerful and so profound. Following that, that means that we are a people of a salvation history. We are a people that constantly have to say, all right, how did we get here? What happened before? You know, what were the ups and downs and the hills and the valleys? That's what Isaiah says. It wasn't all downhill. It'd be nice, but no. Look at Exodus. There's all these turns around and dead ends. Our salvation history is full of mistakes and sins and, and things that had to be rectified and people that had to repent, you know, like Solomon or David. I think if we are honest, we need to also, we're called to that kind of living in memory, but for the future so we can, you know, kind of keep moving to the promised land, so to speak. Yeah. Mm. Sister Terry, what is discipleship for you? What is discipleship for me? I, I, I had to give a talk, one of those online Zoom assemblies that we had to do during the assembly for the Archdiocese of San Antonio. They have an assembly every year. And I was like, what am I going to talk about? But finally, I, I think it was the goofiest talk I've ever offered. And, <laughs> and it was called the Dance of Discipleship. And I did a little play on that song that I've always loved. Dance, then, wherever you may be. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. Because I've always believed that discipleship is like the dance of Jesus. What I mean by that is you cannot learn to dance unless you're dancing. You can't learn it on a book or a podcast. You can't read about it. It's it's something you got to do. It's like you you kind of weave yourself into that dance and that movement and that flow and you're stepping in the steps of Jesus and then you're seeing what Jesus sees and you're touching what Jesus touches and and you're moving in those margins that that Jesus was and you're at the table when he's welcoming all to fellowship and at uh, and so I think discipleship is a movement. And, and it's a constant. And sometimes you're at a step, like at a sink. You know, I'm not a very good dancer. That's probably why I just absolutely think of that that way. But you try. But you, what you got to do is you got to catch the rhythm. Mm. And once you kind of hear that melody of Jesus in your soul, mm. Then you're starting to flow with it. You've been in places where you're just like looking at everybody doing, you know, you know that like dance that people that line kind of dancing that I'm really bad at. I've learned that if I'm looking at everyone else, I mess it up when I'm starting to listen to the rhythm. Mm. 
all of a sudden I'm like flowing with it. And I think that's discipleship for me is to tune in to the melody, to the rhythm that is Jesus through prayer, through Eucharist, through you nourishing your spiritual life. But then once you catch it, you flow with it, you towards others, towards welcoming, towards life. Yeah, yeah. Maybe this is why I started a dance class recently. (laughs) There's something about my soul needs to work this out in an embodied sort of way. Amen. Thank you. Okay. And of course, the last question, what is messy about all this for you? I think life is always messy, Mm -hmm. but sometimes we're under the illusion that it is not. Ah. I think what has been the illusion is that there was no uncertainty or that life was not messy. That was the illusion. And we're waking up from it. It happens even in your family life. You'll have a year that you're like, oh, my God, everything's fine. And then somebody gets cancer. Mm. And it disrupts everything and it's hard and it's sad and it's agonizing. And sometimes you end up saying goodbye to someone you loved dearly. And then the next year you're like, oh my God, I'm so miserable. Like, but it's life. So how do we learn to go through life with that certainty that God is present in all of it, in the messiness and the sadness and the joy and the delight. And how do we cultivate a spiritual life or uncertainty? Mm. How do we anchor each other? Recently, I, when I finished in, in our congregation at the chapter, our leadership team offered them an image as part of our report. The image we offered was that of a palm tree. Mm. And a palm tree needs to be deeply rooted because the winds are going to come. The mm. hurricane is going to come. Mm-hmm. But it also has to be really flexible. So it doesn't break with those winds. When we saw that terrible tragedy in Florida, we again saw those palm trees and they're standing. You're like, how can they be standing? All those houses fell apart. Well, that's because they were flexible and deeply grounded. Mm -hmm. So I think it's messy and it's going to get messier. It is getting crazier and unpredictable and politics and ideology and and a church that breaks my heart by the way, a church that is divided, but I pray every day that we all learn that we've all been called by the same Jesus. I do think that we need to cultivate a a community of deep groundedness and at the same time flexibility because it will continue to be messy and uncertain and difficult to predict. But at the same time, I'm really excited. Yeah. I'm looking at the synodal stuff and I'm saying, wow. God bless the people of God for Mm. speaking their truth with love to our church, for challenging all of us to think differently about so many, so many issues. And I think something is going to come out of this, you know, but we are resurrection people and there has to be a lot of messiness in the passion first. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Thank you, Sister Terry, for coming on Messy Jesus Business. How can our listeners support you and your ministries and the ministries of the Congregation of the Sisters of the Charity of the Incarnate Word? Well, I welcome people to visit our website, uh, amormeos.org, Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word, San Antonio. Help us 
connect and build networks to serve our migrant brothers and sisters in, in the continent, that would be fabulous. And if you can do anything for that, we, one family at a time, would be very grateful. And God only knows, Julia, maybe one day I'll write a book. I'll think about it. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you so much for coming on Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for the invite. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamscans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.